0: This morning, I'm going to be leading us on the next leg of the journey that you all have been making through Psalm 23 for the season of Lent. And uh, I had the privilege of taking us through a reflection on the meaning of verse 5. So as we begin, I'd like to invite us to read Psalm 23 together. Uh, So let's go ahead and do that together. I think it's on the screen, or maybe you have it memorized. I don't know which. (laughs) The Lord is my shepherd. I lack nothing. You anoint my head with oil. My cup overflows. Surely your goodness and love will follow me all the days of my life. And I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. As you have seen the past four weeks, the first half of Psalm 23 is structured around the organizing image of God as shepherd. But here in verse 5, the metaphor changes. You could almost think of it as the second act of a play. When the curtain goes up, the scene has changed. We've gone from out on the hills, where we are the wandering sheep and God is the shepherd, to a banquet scene in the house of God, in which we are the guests and God is the host. There's so much beauty in this picture. I'm really excited to explore it together with you. And so the question that I want us to grapple together with today is this. What does it mean for God to be host? What does the hospitality of God actually look like? Let me pray for us, then we'll begin. Lord Jesus, we ask that you would open our eyes and open our ears to see and to hear what you want us to see and to hear today. We pray that you would give us the faith to trust you. To obey your word. We pray this in the name of Christ. Amen. In the fall of 1946, a couple of Bedouin shepherds were leading their sheep and their goats past a place that they and others before them had seen hundreds of times. They were near an ancient abandoned settlement on the edge of the Dead Sea in a place called Qumran, which I got to visit 10 years ago. And as they led their goats along a dried-out riverbed with cliffs on either side, the teenage shepherds noticed up on the side of the cliff above them there were a handful of small holes. They looked kind of like animal dens or caves. And being teenagers, they did what only a couple of teenagers would think to do. They had a little competition to see who could throw a rock into one of the small cave-like openings. It didn't take long, uh, and one of them landed a rock right, just in the right place. It went through the opening of the cave, and to their surprise, it hit something. It sounded like pottery broke. And this got them curious. And so they climbed up the cliff, and they found their way into the cave, and they discovered a whole collection of what appeared to be pots full of ancient manuscripts. And as they searched the area, they discovered more caves with more manuscripts. By the time the whole area was totally searched, there were nearly 900 manuscripts. The boys didn't know what they had found, but they knew that it was unusual. It wasn't until they collected the manuscripts and sold them to an antiquities dealer, who in turn put them in front of some scholars that people began to realize what had been discovered. These Bedouin teenagers had discovered what we now know as the Dead Sea Scrolls. One of the greatest, greatest archaeological discoveries of the 20th century. They had stumbled onto a collection of biblical manuscripts that remained untouched by human hands for 2,000 years. Due to the dry and arid environment of uh, the Dead Sea, they had been preserved in a way that they wouldn't be in other places. Now, here's what's amazing to me. For hundreds of years, people had wandered with their sheep and their goats up this little dry riverbed and seen the caves and never realized what was hidden within them. All the while, inside the caves remained a treasure trove of precious content waiting to be discovered. Now, I tell you the story this morning because I want to suggest that something very similar could easily be the case for us with Psalm 23. It's a very familiar territory for most of us. Many of us have read over this psalm dozens, if not hundreds, of times. We may even have it memorized. But today I want to propose that there might be a lot more in this text than we first imagined. More than first meets the eye. It all has to do with the lens through which we approach the text. And so this morning I want to give us a different lens through which to approach the text. A lens that the early church used. Um, I'm a bit of a nerd and I like to study church history. And as I've studied church history, I've come to discover that the early church, for the most part, didn't read the Bible in the way that I was taught to read the Bible. I went to seminary and I was trained to seek out the historical and the grammatical context of a passage. I was taught to drill down into the passage and try to find the author's original intent for his original audience, because that's where the meaning is. Now, there's nothing particularly wrong with this way of reading the scriptures. In fact, it can be very helpful at times. It's just that it's not, for the most part, the way the early church fathers approached the text. Instead, what you find if you read the early church writings is that they were fascinated overwhelmingly by another method of reading the Bible. One that may feel a bit foreign to us. And if I were to summarize it uh, in a word, it would be Christological. Christological. What I mean is that they read the entire scripture, Old and New Testament alike, through the lens of Jesus. When it came to understanding the Old Testament, even though on the surface the details of the Old Testament are clearly about the story of Abraham and his family and the people of Israel, in the layers, in the deeper layers of Revelation, the early church understood it to be about Jesus. And so the early church fathers read the Old Testament. When they read the Old Testament, they saw Jesus everywhere in the pages. They weren't just trying to be weird or eccentric or bend the text to say something that it wasn't saying, they had a theological reason for reading the Bible this way. And the reasoning went like this. They believed that as the Gospel of John chapter 1 says, that Jesus is the Word of God. You remember where John says, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God, He was with God in the beginning. Now what that meant to them was that all of Scripture, which they accepted as the Word of God, came through Jesus and was ultimately about him. This was made even clearer in John, verse, uh, John 1, verse 14, where it says that Jesus became, was the word that became flesh, right? The word was made flesh. He is the word of God in human form. Or you could say that he is the embodiment of the Old Testament. Now, why am I telling you this? Because when the early church read Psalm 23... They knew that it was written by David. It said that in a little subtext, you know, under the title there. And they could see that it reflected his experience as a shepherd in the 11th century BC in the hill country of Judea. But none of this is what stood out to them. The early church read the entire psalm Christologically. They read it as being about Jesus. As they understood it, David isn't merely making generic assertions about God... He is talking, even if he didn't know it, about Jesus. When it came to the first part of the psalm, this, which is all about God as shepherd, which you have already explored, they intuitively connected that uh, to Jesus' claim to be the good shepherd in John chapter 10. That's what he says. I am the good shepherd. It's hard not to read Jesus into that section. But what about verse 5? And this is where the early church went crazy. In a good way. When they read this verse, all the lights on their dashboard started flashing at them. They saw something really significant going on in this verse. Something that many of us might not even see at first glance. They read this verse not merely as being about a generic feast, but as being about Holy Communion. Which is the meal all about Jesus. It's interesting because in our era... Psalm 23 is most often associated with funerals, as Pastor Dave mentioned last week, or with people who are anxious or suffering or in some kind of crisis. But hear this, the most common association for this psalm in the early church was not death, not crisis, but Holy Communion. In fact, it was a a common Holy Communion hymn that was used. And so today, following the footsteps of the early church followers, I want to look at Psalm 23, verse 5, through a Christological lens, okay? I want to talk about Jesus as host. I want to talk about him as the host, not in generic terms, but in particular, as the host of this meal we call Holy Communion that is at the center of Christian life and worship. And this is exactly what you get when you invite the pastor of a church called Eucharist to come and preach to you. (laughs) As I see it, there are four essential ideas emerging out of Psalm 23, verse 5, that define Jesus in his role as host. So let me give you the four ideas, and then I'll come back and fill in what I mean by each of these. In his role as host, first of all, Jesus prepares the table. Second, Jesus protects us at the table. Third, Jesus makes us participants in his identity at the table. And finally, Jesus provides more than we need At the table. I know it's cheesy that all these words, uh, these have a word beginning with P, so you're getting a Baptist sermon from an Anglican this morning. (laughs) All right, so let's talk about uh, this, the the first way in which Jesus is host. Jesus prepares the table. This emerges from the first line of verse 5, where the psalmist says, you prepare a table before me. Now, what does this phrase mean? I want to suggest that it speaks to God taking initiative in relationship to us. You remember in the garden, Adam and Eve, after they disobeyed, um, it was God who went in search of humanity. God went in search of humanity. And this is true throughout the Bible. God is the initiator. This is the basic shape of the gospel that we know throughout the scriptures. God calls... And it is we who respond. Or as First John 4, 19 says, we love, why? Because he first loved us. God is the one who initiates, who invites, who even goes out onto the hills to find us and bring us back to his table. And the only way that we can come to his table is in response to his invitation. Now this might seem like a minor detail, but it's actually quite important. Saying that Jesus prepares the table for us is a way of acknowledging that we're actually not in charge. That we aren't entitled to this feast. That we're simply here at his gracious invitation. And this is backwards from how we handle everything else most of the week, right? If you think about it, most of the week we function in settings in which we're in charge. Or we're trying to be in charge at least. So for example, when I go out to eat at a restaurant, I'm there because I'm choosing to be there. I chose the time. I chose the place. I choose the food that I'm going to eat. The food is brought to me, and if I'm unhappy with it, I can send it right back to the kitchen. I'm in charge because I'm paying with my hard-earned money. It's a feast that I initiate. But I want you to notice that the action described in Psalm 23 verse 5 is the exact opposite. You prepare a table before me. The table is set by the host who initiates the invitation for us to come to his table. And when we come, we don't come as consumers, we come as guests. I like to translate what I'm saying here about how we approach communion. There are some important language uh, um, There's some important things having to do with language about this that I want to clarify for a moment here. You know, for for most of my life, when I uh, referred to the experience of participating in Holy Communion, um, I referred to it as taking communion. Like, did you take communion today? Someone would ask. A few years back, I started realizing how unhelpful that language is. It gets it backwards. It puts the initiating emphasis on me. Taking communion, taking communion is actually an oxymoron. It's a self-contradictory statement. To be a taker would be to destroy communion. Communion is about self-donation, not consumption. And so I think a much better way of describing participation in Holy Communion is to talk about receiving communion, receiving communion. Now, it might sound like a subtle difference, But it matters quite a bit. Language of receiving conjures a totally different picture with a different posture than that of taking, right? The picture of receiving is one in which you aren't in control. It's a picture of humility. The posture of receiving is one with hands open, like a beggar receiving bread. This image is echoed in one of my uh, favorite one-line descriptions of Christianity comes from a guy named D.T. Niles, who I know nothing else about except for this phrase. <laughs> Christianity, he says, is really just one beggar telling another where he found bread. Isn't that good? I love the humility and the posture that it expresses. We're all just beggars, really. And Jesus has set the table for us, and the table he prepares for us is a table of Humility. It's a table that can only be approached with open hands of surrender. And at this table, God is in charge from the beginning to the end. And that's good news. My wife and I have been learning a lot uh, recently about what it means to be hosts who prepare for a guest. Uh, We just welcomed our first child six weeks ago. Uh, So, thank you. Uh, You should really be applauding my wife. She did the work on this one here, so... um. Uh, My wife and our son are somewhere uh, in here, around here. If you hear a baby crying, I'm sure it's probably my son. Uh, As anyone who is a parent knows, part of what happens when you have a child is you do a lot of preparing. My wife started going nuts about three months ago, or three months before Nathan was born. Uh, She just had this extreme urge to nest. Like she couldn't imagine having a baby without a place for him. And so I spent like days, maybe weeks, working on, on rearranging our stuff Uh, mostly getting rid of my books, um, which was like getting rid of one child to get ready for another, you know. It was very painful, very painful. So we got our little one-bedroom apartment all put together, and uh, we had a little nook in the corner of the bedroom, and we were really excited about it, and we were ready. And then five days before uh, he was due, uh, we got word that there was a two-bedroom unit in our complex. There was a below-market-rate unit that we were being offered. So we tore apart his entire nursery. We moved all of our stuff on his due date. Uh, So I got to go through the process of preparing a place for Nathan twice. Uh, Which wasn't really fun. But honestly, I didn't mind. Because preparing a place for my son was an act of love. If I didn't care about him, then I wouldn't have bothered, right? But since I love him, and I hope that one day he loves me, I prepared a place for him. In a similar way, Jesus prepares the table for us as an act of love. He initiates the feast because he loves us. And the truth is that we're as helpless as my newborn son. We need the table prepared for us. So the first big idea about Jesus as host is that Jesus prepares the table. The next way that we see Jesus as host comes in the second phrase of the verse. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. Now, reading this Christologically, I would say it like this. Jesus protects us at the table. Because we come to the table at Jesus' invitation and on his terms, the table is a place in which we entrust ourselves entirely to his protection. We are promised safety at his table. Yeah, amen. Historically, a major part of the meaning of hospitality that that you may not know was protecting guests from harm. Be that from wild animals, from the natural elements, from bandits or from enemies who are pursuing them. In fact, in the ancient world, you wouldn't travel at all if there wasn't a culture of hospitality. You just wouldn't make it. We have numerous stories in the Old Testament of people receiving protection at the hands of a stranger. Think of the story of Rahab the prostitute uh, and the spies in Jericho. And uh, Rahab offered protection to the two men who were total strangers to her, protecting them from the men of her own city. This is classic ancient world hospitality. There is such a strong uh, connection historically between protection and hospitality that you can see it in the etymology of the word host, which is kind of interesting here. The word host comes from a Latin word, hostis. Um, have you ever wondered, by the way, why a hostel, as in the place you stay, sounds so much like the term hostile, as in the person who is your enemy? Well, now you know why. Because they share the same Latin root, and they're associated with each other here. You see, here's how it works. A host is a person who provides care and safety for the one who has sought its protection, And simultaneously, a host is now hostile to anyone who would seek to harm the guest under his care. Does that make sense? Okay. So you can see this in a slightly unexpected place in the scriptures in the Old Testament. Uh, This is one of the titles that I never understood. God is often referred to as the Lord of hosts, right? And I'm like, that's a weird term. When I think of a host, I think of the person that seats me at the restaurant, you know? Like he's the Lord of the person that sits me at the restaurant. Uh, But in the Bible, it's a warrior image. The hosts are the angelic army protecting God's interests. So the Lord of hosts is a picture of the warrior God who leads the heavenly army. What I'm describing is something almost totally absent from our vision of hospitality. But it was perhaps the most important part of hospitality in the ancient world. Like, you didn't care if the fork and the knife were in the right position on the table. Thank you, Martha Stewart. But you did care you did care that the knife wouldn't end up in your back sometime in the night. Some cultures today uh, continue this tradition of hospitality. Uh, About 10 years ago, I lived in Kenya for about four months, and I got to experience a different kind of hospitality than I've ever run into in the United States. Uh, I will never forget the hospitality that I received on one occasion from a man uh, who I met who lived in the largest slum in sub-Saharan Africa. Uh, The slum is called Kibera and it's in Nairobi. And just to give you some context of Kibera, imagine the entire population of San Francisco crammed into a little over half of Golden Gate Park with a maximum building height of two stories. That's exactly what Kibera is. It's a place that is filled with overwhelming amounts of trash, hordes of flies, roaming dogs, and a number of dangerous gangs. But mostly, it's just a lot of poor people trying to scrape out a living. But it's not exactly the kind of place that you want to go. But my friend wanted to show me where he lived, and I felt honored that he wanted to invite me to his home, so I agreed to visit him. Uh, He arranged to meet me where I was living and to travel with me to his home. It's the first time I've ever had that happen in hospitality. He saw accompanying me as an essential part of the hospitality that he was offering me. He told me on the bus ride to the slum that I needed to stay close to him and to walk as quickly as possible when we arrived. Uh, he even arranged a second person to walk with us so that I had someone on either side of me. He knew that I would stick out like a sore thumb in this slum, and, so, uh, and that I would gather a lot of attention uh, quickly, and some of the attention could be dangerous. Uh, the nickname of Nairobi is Nairobbery for a reason. Um, <laughs> So when we got to the edge of the slum, he literally took me by the hand, like like a a father takes a little boy to walk across the street. He took me by the hand, and we walked at the the briskest pace possible, weaving through side alleys, jumping over open sewage ditches, avoiding the places where he knew dangerous people lurked. And after 10 or 15 minutes of weaving through uh, all all the maze of 10 roof shacks, we came to his home, which was a single room that he shared with three other men. Uh, he was excited to point out the bed that he slept in. This is interesting to me, which he called a hotbed. And I didn't know what he meant by that until he explained. It's a hotbed because one person slept in it during the night, and as soon as that guy went off to work in the morning, my friend got back from his night security job, and they would just swap places. And so the bed never cooled off, so they called it a hotbed. <laughs> so in order to show me some hospitality, my friend uh, went next door, because uh, they had no furniture, and he borrowed a chair for me to sit on while he cooked me an egg, and he made me some African tea. A wave of emotion hit me as he was doing this because I saw that he was using up the very last of his sugar. And you have to know that sugar in your tea is a luxury in Africa, in, in this, at least in the slum here. Here was a man who had next to nothing, but he offered me all that he had. We spent an hour or two together talking about his wife and his kids that were back home in the village, And then it was time for me to leave. And he again personally walked me back to my bus and traveled with me all the way back to my home. There was so much that I learned about hospitality that day. But right at the top of the list was how much work he went to in order to keep me safe. Protecting me was his top priority. As my host, he would have gladly thrown himself in harm's way before letting something happen to me. For me, this was a small window into the picture of Jesus as host. As our host, Jesus has promised to protect us at his table. And we can be sure that the table is a safe place for us because Jesus did, in fact, throw himself in harm's way for our sake. This isn't theoretical. It's historical. If we think of the table in verse 5, in terms of the communion table, as I've been suggesting, one of the reasons this is a place of safety is that the table is a place of humility. There's no pretense possible at the table. We can only receive Jesus' invitation to the table by acknowledging that we have no right to be there. Let me say that again. Nobody can be at the table without acknowledging that they have no right to be there. This is a table of grace, not merit. And this is what makes it safe to bring our whole selves to the table. Even, perhaps especially, the broken and ugly parts of us. We don't have to hide. We can let down our defenses. We have nothing to prove or protect at the table. And this and this is how shame is healed at the table. In Christ, God has brought us near to him... And he knows better than anyone what the accusations are against us. He knows our brokenness. He knows our foolishness. But as Romans 8, 31 says, if God is for us, who is against us? Right? Or verse 33, who will bring any charge against God's elect? Or verse 34, who is to condemn? As Paul has already said back in Romans 8, verse 1, there is therefore now no condemnation For those who are in Christ Jesus. Jesus protects us at the table. And his way of protecting us at the table is by setting the terms of the table. And these are the terms. The only people who can be there are people who realize they don't belong there. People who have laid down their right of revenge. Who have entrusted their defense entirely to the host. Over the years I've come to realize that I'm a naturally defensive person. For reasons I don't know all the reasons why. Uh, I hate it when people misunderstand me or criticize me. I want to prove to them that they're wrong. I want to defend my reputation, my character, my honor. But this is all just my pride, really. And it has no place at the table. At the table, I can entrust my defense to Jesus, who knows better than anyone that I'm not innocent. The good news is that innocence isn't a a prerequisite for being at the table, right? In fact, the only people who can come to the table are those who acknowledge they aren't innocent. (laughs) Perhaps we should imagine there's like a sign hanging over the the, the entry to the the banquet hall. No innocent parties allowed. (laughs) The only one who is innocent is the host, who ironically uh, has his blood on the hands of each person he welcomes to his table. This is one of the paradoxes of the gospel. And here's where something beautiful emerges. If humility and fully entrusting ourselves to our host are what define the terms of the table, then this opens up all kinds of possibilities for what Jesus can do at his table. In this context, um, in the context of humility, the table becomes a place of reconciliation. We might approach the table, we might see somebody we think doesn't belong there. Somebody who has discredited himself or herself. Someone we imagine is our enemy. But then we remember, we don't belong here either. We're only here because of Christ. And this is why enemies cannot remain enemies at the table. The table is defined by forgiveness and reconciliation. You see this captured in what Jesus teaches in the Lord's Prayer, right? He says, uh, give us this day our daily bread. You have the the feast going on there. Um, And then forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. All right, so the second way that we see Jesus as host in Psalm 23, 5 is that Jesus protects us at the table. The third idea emerging out of verse 5 is found, not surprisingly, in the third line. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. In the ancient world, dry skin uh, was a problem. They didn't have lotion. So people walked around with chapped and flaky skin. And the remedy for this was oil. Oil soothed the skin, provided healing. So part of the ancient hospitality involved the host offering oil for his weary, chapped, and sunburned guests. You remember the parable in the New Testament where Jesus talks about the poor hospitality that was offered? He said, you didn't even offer to to Simon, you didn't even offer me oil? So this is what David is talking about. But when the early church read this Christologically, as we've been trying to read the psalm this morning, they saw another layer of meaning emerging. They read this verse as an invitation to participate in Jesus' identity. Let me explain this. It has to do with the meaning of the term Christ. Uh, Some people mistakenly think that Christ is the last name of Jesus. Uh, It's not actually, right? Uh, It's actually a title. Uh, The term Christ is the Greek form of the Hebrew word that we translate into English as Messiah. Messiah and Christ both mean anointed one. Jesus is the anointed one. In the Old Testament, prophets, priests, and kings were all anointed with oil as a way of initiating them into their ministry. And as Messiah, Jesus is all three of those. He is prophet, he is priest, and he is king. Uh, The implications of this are a sermon for another time, uh, so I won't go into that. But as you know, uh, in the Bible, when a person came to entrust their life to Jesus, they were baptized and they were joined to his identity. They were joined to his identity as prophet, priest, and king. Now, historically speaking, a beautiful ceremony developed around the experience of baptism. Uh, In a traditional baptism ceremony, you would come to the waters of baptism, you would strip off your old clothes, symbolically stripping off your old life. Some of you will be surprised to learn that baptism was a naked experience in the first four or five centuries of the church. Um, I don't know why this tradition went away. Uh, Maybe they found baptism numbers were dropping uh, all of a sudden. Or maybe it was the opposite. Maybe they were like, baptismal services are way too popular these days. I don't know. Like... Anyway, uh, so you would strip off your clothes, you'd go into the water, and if you were being baptized, you would go down into the waters of baptism and be immersed into the water three times uh, with the, 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 the formula in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit done over you and that. And then you would come up out of the waters of baptism. You'd be given a white garment which symbolized how we are clothed in the righteousness of Christ. And then you would be anointed with special oil called chrism. And the goal was to be initiated into the community of the anointed by having oil put on your forehead. This is why we are called Christians. We're little anointed ones. Representatives of the anointed one who share in his mission of love. Isn't that beautiful? So as the host, Jesus not only prepares the table for us, he not only protects us at the table, he makes us a part of himself at the table. We are anointed and christened with his name and his title and tasked with his mission. This is what the early church heard when they read, you anoint my head with oil. The fourth and the final way in which Jesus, uh, we see Jesus emerging as the host um, out of Psalm 23, verse 5, is found in the fourth line of the verse. My cup overflows. This is a picture of abundance. As the host, Jesus provides more than we need at his table. When I was a kid, I used to love going to a restaurant called Fresh Choice. Uh, It was an endless buffet of soup and salad and pizza and baked goods and fruit and dessert and strawberry lemonade. You just had to pay your entry and then you got in there and you ate until it was coming out of your ears, right? It was like the best place ever as a teenager. Um, It was a place where I didn't have to hold back. I could just try a little of this and a little of that, and nobody cared if I finished what was on my plate. I went back for, like, the sixth time to get something. It was like a living icon of the abundance of God's table. But alas, it was too good to last. Fresh choice went defunct in 2012. Apparently, too many people like me ate them out of house and home, so... The harsh reality of this world is that there will always be problems of scarcity. Even Jesus warned us that the poor will always be with us. But at the table, the scarcity that defines the rest of life is not present. It's not there. The the zero-sum game of having to slice the pie into smaller and smaller slices, the more and more people come, that's not the reality of the table, actually. Instead, at the table, we experience abundance, abundance, which is what Jesus demonstrated in the feeding of the 5,000, right? Five loaves and two fish satisfied everyone. And they still had 12 basketfuls left over. Do you know that John, in the Gospel of John, this is where John teaches his, his, uh, his theology of, the, of Holy Communion. It's in John 6, where he has that whole story of the feeding of the 5,000, and then he goes on to explain This is why he does this. Because it is a theology of abundance. In Christ, there is more than we could ever desire. His table makes fresh choice feel downright limited. (laughs) And because of this, this theology of abundance, the church historically has always taught something interesting. They say that when you receive the communion elements, regardless of how big or small the portion of bread or wine is that you swallow, you are receiving All of Jesus. All of Jesus. His life, death, resurrection, ascension, his humanity, his divinity, you are receiving all of Jesus in that. What I'm describing is something we cannot even begin to explain. That in this mysterious meal, we receive not merely bread and wine, but the God whose presence cannot be contained by the entire universe. That ought to blow your mind. And this is perhaps the greatest paradox of the table. Jesus is not only the host; he's the feast. There's an interesting linguistic signpost pointing to what I'm describing uh, that exists within the historic church, at least in the English-speaking context. Do you know what that little wafer is that that uh, the priest, uh, the pastor, holds up in communion? You know what it's called? It's called the host. Isn't it fascinating that in communion we are hosted at the Lord's table by Jesus who in turn offers his very self to us. This is my body which is broken for you. This is my blood which is poured out for you. There is no lack at the table of the Lord because in offering himself to us he has given us everything. He has withheld nothing from us. And his deepest desire is that we would respond to his self-donation by offering ourselves completely to him in return. And why wouldn't we, really? He has prepared the table for us. He has invited us to his feast. For he has promised to protect us from any who would seek to harm us. He has given us his name and his title and a place in his family as part of his identity. And he has promised us more than enough a cup that runs over. Abundance beyond our wildest imagination. He has offered us his very self. Brothers and sisters, this is the essence of life without lack. And so the question that I want you to think about, that I want to leave you with is this. What on earth is keeping you from his table? What is keeping you from this abundance? Jesus prepares us the table before us. Some of us have been trying to make our own table. Trying to show God that we have a place at his table. Now he's already prepared the table for you. Some of us try to come to the table on our own terms. But he's already prepared it for you. Jesus protects us at his table. Some of us here feel beat up, feel tired, and feel like there's accusations against us. Jesus will defend you at the table. He will. Jesus makes us participants in his identity at the table. We have identities as individuals right now, but we want an eternal identity, don't we? We want to belong with him forever. He's made a way for that. And Jesus has provided more than we need at his table. Abundance beyond what we can possibly imagine. Today, let us taste and see that the Lord is indeed good. Amen? Amen. Let me pray for you. Jesus, I am so grateful that you are the Lord of the table. That you are the master. And that you love us with an everlasting love. So much so that you would go ahead and make a place for us. Not because we deserve it, but because you love us. Lord, we ask today that you would, in fact, protect us. For some of us, we feel very vulnerable right now in our lives. And we ask that you would defend us, that you would be our our warrior, our host. And Lord, we just give ourselves to you. We want our identity to be connected to you eternally. And we pray uh, in a special way today, Lord, for those who feel like they lack Thank you that you are a God of abundance. We pray that you would meet us and strengthen us at your table. In this we pray in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. And all God's people said, Amen. Amen.